Welcome to the third episode of Conversations and the first for 2022. The series will focus on investment concepts and outcomes of interest to you and your clients. As with our earlier podcasts, this episode will focus on income and in this third instalment, we're going to discuss income from global equities. For many people, global equities are not the first asset class that comes to mind when investing for income. However, to ignore it is to disregard a very real opportunity to get that all-important income for your clients. Today's podcast features GSFM's CEO, Damien McIntyre, and Epic Investment Partners Managing Director and Portfolio Manager, John Tobin. John's been managing the Epic Global Equity Shareholder Yield Fund for a number of years, and you may have seen him present at one of our roadshows or in more recent times via a webinar. Today, Damien and John will discuss how global companies return cash to shareholders, consider the outlook for dividends in the current investment environment, and compare long and short duration stocks. That's right, bond terminology being used in the equity market. Before I hand over, I need to read this important notice. The information contained in this podcast is general and does not consider your objectives, financial situations or needs. The information and views contained in this update reflect as at the day of recording the current opinions of the participants and are subject to change without notice. Before making an investment decision in relation to a fund, Investors should consider the appropriateness of this information, having regard to their own objectives, financial situation and needs, and read and consider both the product disclosure statement and the additional information. GSFM Responsible Entity Services has produced a target market determination in relation to all the GSFM funds. The TMD sets out the class of persons who comprise the target market for the various funds which can be downloaded from our website. This podcast was recorded on Wednesday, the 2nd of February, 2022. The floor is all yours, gents. Thank you very much, Tracy. And, uh, and on behalf of GSFM, um, I reiterate uh, our welcome to you and we sincerely hope you enjoyed our episodes last year which included Steve Miller speaking about uh, fixed income and Max Capetta from Redpoint talking about dividends from Australian equities. Uh, today uh, as Tracy pointed out we're joined by John Tobin. John is a long-time friend of GSFM and been with Epic approaching 10 years I think. By way of background John started his career in the bond market managing high yield and in investment grade bond portfolios. Took a spell from that and then I believe you went to Fordham University, John, where you lectured in economics before yep. making a return to the equity market about 10 years ago with Epic to work specifically on this portfolio. So John brings bond market experience, economic experience, and of course, a long background in the equity market to bear on, on this portfolio. So I'm really looking forward to an interesting conversation with you, John. One thing, uh, the whole purpose of these podcasts really is to talk about where do we find income because the lust for yield and the demand for income bearing assets really is insatiable given the demographic of the aging population and it really is a case of buyer beware of income because I think what is the greatest truism in financial markets is that all that glitters uh, is not gold and there are times when income bearing assets are uh, look great times 
when they don't. And for some reason, traditional dividend paying stocks during this NASDAQ rally of the last four or five years seemingly lost their appeal to investors, which was quite interesting because we find ourselves in a period of time now where interest rates are rising because of inflation and bonds become problematic in, uh, investments for clients because bonds can't keep up with inflation. Inflation is actually their enemy, whereas equities or companies in many ways can pass on the inflationary aspects of, of their finances to customers in, in higher prices or they can seek other ways to compensate earnings. So equities for a long time have been a great place to find yield. So with that, just before Christmas, you you hosted a webinar, John, titled Reflation, Duration and Salvation. Whilst I want to discuss each of those points with you, do you think investors can look forward to an improved income scenario from global equities in the coming year or so? I think the short answer, Demo, is yes. You know, we've you touched on a, a lot of important facts that have just defined the environment in recent years. Uh, we've, for the most part, for the past decade, have dealt with very, very low interest rates as a result of monetary policy. And we've made the argument over the years that investors that seek income should take a look at uh, what a diversified portfolio of high quality equities can deliver in the way of income. And that was true when interest rates were low and anchored at zero around most of the world. It's still true today, even as interest rates move higher. And as you've pointed out, we are seeing rates move higher. It's in response to inflation. It's in response to a favorable economic backdrop as the world begins to recover from the pandemic. And the pace of economic growth around the world is, uh, I guess, an economist would describe it as above trend. And even as it slows and decelerates, we're still anticipating above trend growth around the world this year and even into next year. So above trend growth and inflationary pressures and a changing stance from central banks around the world who are all now talking about reducing accommodation and normalizing policy. It's it's leading to an environment of rising interest rates. And it's still an environment where income investors face challenges. Yes, fixed income interest rates are starting to move up, but they're moving up in the context of rates going higher in response to inflation. And that's a really challenging investment for a fixed income investor. As you alluded to earlier, my, my earlier days, the early days of my career were in the bond market, in the high yield bond market. And bond investors know when interest rates go up, there's really no place to hide. But what they also know is that best strategy in a rising interest rate environment for a fixed income investor is to shorten duration. And that's a concept that we're starting to see a lot of people talking about in the context of, of equities. Just on shortening duration, really the, the most effective way for a financial advisor to shorten the duration of their interest rate exposure, if you like, is to hold term deposit. Uh, and, and in Australia, even with this sort of latest volatility in interest rates, it's still a pittance. It's still 30 basis points for a one-year time deposit. So again, it just makes the task of finding fixed income investments with duration taken out of the equation. So difficult. You know, the other thing that we've all observed in recent years is that income investors are looking at more and more exotic ways to generate income, either more risk, uh, move down the risks spectrum, go into junk bonds, go into exotic structured vehicles that are designed to create income. And it's complicated and it's challenging and it's 
frankly, it's just a whole lot easier to understand what you own and what you're investing in. If your portfolio is a portfolio of equities of blue chip companies, large companies, high quality companies that have a history of paying dividends, growing dividends supported by growing cash flow, it's almost so simple, it's obvious. This is probably the most appropriate time to remind investors the purpose of equity. And the purpose of equities really, they're not a casino. They're not a tended to be a, a mechanism for people to get famously rich. What they really are is their income generating asset that over long periods of time appreciate in value and beat inflation. And really that's, that's their key purpose in a portfolio. Tell me about reflation and how you see this impacting equity market. Well, so the view that we've way we're starting to frame this in our shop is we we see the world emerging from the pandemic. It was 2020 was a spectacular collapse, if you will, once in a century pandemic, very abrupt and sharp economic collapse. But the, the world is recovering and largely thanks to the incredibly rapid development of effective vaccines and the pace at which the world is recovering is frankly, I think it's surprisingly fast. I, I think if you go back to the middle of 2020, when people started to talk about how we might recover from the pandemic, there was a lot of discussion about what the shape of the recovery might look like. And it was a pretty strong consensus view, I think, that we certainly weren't going to see a V-shaped recovery. Maybe it looks a little bit like a Nike swoosh. You know, it sort of takes off and gradually over time, we climb back out of this hole. Well, in fact, it has been a V-shaped recovery. We've had setbacks. We had Delta. We have Omicron. Who knows what might come next? Nevertheless, I think the evidence is that the global economies are recovering. So this is the reflation part of the of this thesis that we have. The global economies are recovering. We'll have above-trend economic growth for the next couple of years. It's a very favorable environment for businesses in terms of revenues, earnings, cash flows, demand. You see consumer demand recovering. You see employment recovering. And so that sets the stage for a, a favorable economic backdrop for businesses for the next couple of years. So that's the reflation part of our thesis. It's been fascinating to observe. I mean, I think we all expected economic growth to fall off a cliff once, you know, once the pandemic gripped the world through the first quarter and second quarter of, of 2020. But I think what, what's been fascinating to observe is that we've spoken about technology and the power of technology for, for 20 years, but we really saw its most tangible evidence in that so many service industries worked from home. Productivity was maintained, if not improved. Uh, it's really been a fascinating time. I think the, the thing that is of concern to all of us are these lags in supply chains around the world for various reasons, which is, is at the heart of the inflationary pressure, isn't it? I think that's right. I think it's... It you shut everything down suddenly and you tell everybody to stop working unless you're an essential worker, go home. When you restart that machine, it takes a little while for the supply chain, for the inventory channels to be refilled. It's not something that can happen in the span of two or three or six months. It's kind of interesting sometimes to take a step back and think about what we were saying not that long ago and it, that the message we were hearing consistently from the Federal Reserve was, well, inflation is going to be transitory. This isn't going to last. It's supply chains and, and they'll all get refilled and everything will be back to normal soon. Well, clearly it's taking longer than we thought and supply chain issues continue to be problematic for businesses, 
you know, there are signs that things are getting better, but it is taking time for that to be relieved. Now, the other aspect of this is playing out is labor shortages and labor availability and labor costs. So there are some components of this inflation experience that will likely dissipate as supply chains get refilled and inventory channels get refilled. But I think that there's probably some lingering inflation in the system. And that's not a bad thing. It's something that for a number of years, central banks around the world were hoping to get inflation up to around 2% and were frustrated that they couldn't seem to get inflation at all. So now we, we like it looks like we might be in an environment where as, as the inflation numbers come down in coming months and quarters, we, you know, we drift down to something and end up with an inflation rate in, I don't know, two and a half, three percent 3%, maybe it gets down to 2%. That's not a bad outcome. That's the outcome we were hoping for. So now we're going to have some inflation in the system. And when you think about businesses and how they operate, a little bit of inflation is not a bad thing. It gives businesses pricing flexibility. It allows them to have some mechanism to respond to cost pressures, whether it's raw materials or labor. They have the ability to raise prices and pass some of those cost increases along to customers. So we are going to be left with some residual inflation here. And the, the inflation, sort of steady state inflation, once the dust has settled after the pandemic, is going to be higher than it was before. But again, not a bad thing. That's, that's what we've been hoping to achieve from a policy standpoint for a while. So I, I think that's that's favorable. So above trend growth, moderate inflation, moderately higher interest rates. These are signs of a healthy environment and positive macroeconomic backdrop for businesses to operate in. Good for revenues, earnings, cash flows. Good for the ability of businesses to make distributions to shareholders in the form of dividends and share buyback. How do you see that playing out this time? Do you, you think that companies have lost the fear to put prices up? I think that, uh, you know, every good business person wants to maximize profitability. And one of the ways to maximize profitability is to raise prices when you can, take market share when you can, be as competitive as possible. So the desire to use price as a tool or as a lever, I don't think it ever went away. I think maybe it was frustrating for businesses to operate in an environment where it was just really impossible to, to raise prices. And now that flexibility uh, seems to be returning. And it, it's just in a normal course of operations, businesses are in a position to say, new season, new price list. And you might have noticed that my prices have gone up and it's just the environment we're operating in. And I'm finding that I'm not getting resistance from my customers if I institute a moderate price increase. And I, so I think this is an environment where, as I said earlier, if there's a broad general inflation, modest inflation in the economy, then those are the types of events that can take place without attracting a whole lot of attention or competitive pushback or customer pushback. We're all operating in a different environment. We're all experiencing higher costs. I get it. You're raising your prices. I'm raising my price. It works all the way down the chain. And the virtuous circle actually does end up with the wage earner without inflation and without the ability for a company to pass on the impacts of inflation at a profitable level to consumers, there's really no hope of wages growth. If companies are earning less and less through the cycle by not letting inflationary imp impact their margin, the average worker can't get a pay rise. Um, right. So all this is necessary, isn't it? 
It is, you know, and the, the wage, uh, at, at the risk of saying something that's kind of a truism, uh, it's always supply and demand. And the same is true with workers. And if, again, if you're a business running, if you're a business person and you have a business and you need to hire somebody, you might find that, gee, I used to pay people X for this job and have been advertising the job with that salary or that wage, and I'm just not getting applicants. There's a supply and demand phenomenon in labor markets that can cause wages to go up independently of what's going on in terms of general inflation. It doesn't have to be now the workers are able to get wage increases. It may simply be the labor market's tight. That's why we get wage increases. And that's part of the inflationary pressure story. It's businesses are raising prices to cover costs, including a higher cost that they're paying to get workers to fill positions. We're experiencing that down here in Australia because borders were closed for two years and immigrants didn't receive any social security protection from the governments during the various lockdowns. So many of those foreign workers left the country to go back to Europe and or wherever they came from where they could get some sort of help from government. So we've got a massive labour shortage here in Australia as well and wages are significantly spiking as a result of that. Anecdotally, we did a little project on a vacation home. It took considerably longer than we thought, but that was one of the issues. Uh, It wasn't just that building supplies were hard to get, and they were, and lead times were longer than they had normally, than they would normally be. But the contractor that we were working with explained, I just, I can't get workers. The people that were working for me that I sent home when everything was shut down during the pandemic, they're not working in construction anymore. They've moved on. And this is another example of a supply chain bottleneck that new workers to replace these missing workers, that can take time to find people that have the right skill that can come to a job site and perform those tasks. It doesn't happen overnight. It takes months and months and months for that population to be refilled. Now, during your webinar, you spoke about duration, and duration is a concept that's usually associated with bonds. So in the context of equities, what is a short or a long duration stock, and how do they, how does that impact their ability to provide income, right. the duration of the business? You know, and it's, it, it is true. It is a concept that is familiar to fixed income investors and maybe a bit foreign for equity investors, but I, I also think that it's, it's very straightforward, and as soon as you sort of lay out what you mean by duration and why you think it's important. I think you very quickly have people nodding their heads saying, oh, that makes perfect sense. I get it. Uh, The idea that, well, money has time value and it matters whether the dollar you're going to receive is a dollar that you're going to receive this year or next year or 10 years from now. And so, you know, what's a long duration equity? A long duration equity is the stock of a company where the revenues, earnings, and cash flows are expected to occur years into the future. And the current generation of revenues, earnings, and cash flows might be really, really small. You know, I've used this as an example, and I I think it actually is a nice way to illustrate what we mean by these concepts. If you think of two different companies, Tesla on one hand, and Toyota Motor Corporation on the other hand. Toyota's been around for a very long time. They are the world's largest automobile manufacturer in terms of the number of cars that they make. They generate a tremendous amount of revenues, earnings, and cash flows right now. They're paying a dividend today. They engage in share purchases today. So I would offer that as an example of a, you know, just put that to one side and then contrast that with Tesla. Uh, This is a company that is perhaps at the forefront, legitimately at the forefront of an emerging trend and shift towards electric vehicles. But when you think about how many cars do they make compared to the number of cars made by Toyota, what's 
the revenue generation at Tesla relative to Toyota? What's the cash flow generation at Tesla relative to Toyota? You begin to see th this is what we're talking about. Tesla is a company, the valuation of that stock today is built on an expectation of significant revenues, earnings, and cash flows years out in the future. And even though in terms of the number of cars manufactured, Toyota is multiples larger than Tesla. Toyota has a market capitalization of about $300 billion. Tesla has a market capitalization close to a trillion dollars. And I don't mean this in any way to suggest I'm criticizing Tesla or predicting the downfall or collapse of Tesla. I'm just saying when you look at those two companies and what their cash flow streams look like and what their equity valuation looks like, you begin to get an understanding of, oh, short duration versus long long duration. I, now I'm kind of understanding it. You know, another example that I recently was utilizing in a conversation with one of my coworkers was, well, even within the tech space, there's a tendency perhaps to think, ah, so tech, tech is long duration. I think that's a little bit too simplistic. I think that there's variation in duration across sectors as well as within sectors. And so I was saying, well, look at, I'll give you three different tech stocks. And one is Cisco Systems, one is Broadcom, and one is NVIDIA. And again, if you look at those companies in terms of free cash flow generation, dividends that they're paying today, and then the market valuation. Again, I think you can really pretty quickly wrap your head around this idea that NVIDIA may be really well positioned for some significant trends in the global economy, whether it's gaming, data centers, artificial intelligence, autonomous vehicles. They're really well positioned as a business to benefit from those trends. But when you look at the stock and the valuation of the stock and the timing and the profile of the cash flows that that business generates, again, I think you start to you know have that kind of, oh, I get it, uh, long duration versus short duration. Well, so what does it mean? If interest rates are going up, the math is pretty straightforward. It's it's a present value calculation. And so you've got projected cash flows in the numerator and a discount factor in the denominator. And as the discount factor goes up, the present value goes down. And again, the math is pretty straightforward. It has a bigger impact. A given interest rate increase has a bigger impact on a distant future cash flow than it does on a near-term cash flow. This is the, the intellectual foundation of this argument that we've been making, along with many others, by the way, that duration is a concept that applies to equities as well as fixed income securities. And in a rising interest rate environment, this is something that equity investors should probably be thinking about. Do I have long duration equities in my portfolio? Do I have long duration equities that have experienced significant price appreciation and multiple expansion in my portfolio? And would I expect them to face valuation headwinds in an environment of rising interest rates? And the argument that we've, we tried to present in the webinar is that shorter duration equities should be more resilient in that environment. And shorter duration equities are the kinds of equities, by definition, that we're investing in in the shareholder yield strategy. Companies generating cash flow today, paying dividends today, as opposed to companies that we hope someday will generate significant cash flows and maybe someday actually pay a dividend. Ironically, this is exactly what we've seen in the, since the beginning of the, the last quarter of 21, isn't it? A simplistic way to describe it is a value rotation. But effectively, yeah. the world saw rising interest rates coming and became concerned about inflation. So rather than switching their emphasis on short duration stocks or high PE stocks or whatever you want to call them, they really did begin to switch in, in number to those companies earning money now that they can see in real time and benefit from any cash distribution along the way. Exactly. I mean, we, we, we've seen it. It, it. It's played out for us as we don't always have perfect timing, but 
we actually have complimented ourselves saying, boy, that December webinar, we, I'm glad we didn't put that off and say, oh, it's, it's the holidays. It's hard to get people focused. Let's just do that in the first quarter of 2022. We went ahead, we did it in December. And I think we, it was good that we got that message out there because as you've said, since the end of December and into January, we've seen this play out in the market in the way that some of these, if you call it growthier stocks, long duration equities in the behavior of those stocks over the past five or six weeks. When we look back over to this is the this is the great conundrum that investors in dividend paying companies was confronted with in, in the last two or three years, as I said in my opening remark, for decades, and I'm talking about 80, 90 years of history, showed that companies that paid dividends to their shareholders outperformed companies that didn't pay dividends to their shareholders, and companies that paid increasing dividends to shareholders outperformed even more. Mm-hmm. And, and this is what gave everyone this feeling of comfort and security in those types of companies. And then we got to a, a two or three year period where it was turned on its head, where those companies, those long duration companies, you know, on the main spectacularly outperformed short duration companies. And you know, the traditional dividend investor was left scratching his head trying to work out what happened. So, <laughs> so which I think is a pretty, pretty fair description of, of, of what happened. But so now we're starting to see that reverse. But how do you think that'll be history will reflect on this in one quarter is one quarter? What do you yeah. think history will say in a couple of years time? Well, I guess I, my hope is, my expectation is that, as you've just described, there's a long-term history for decades that established a pattern that made sense in terms of which stocks you could rely on to do reasonably well. And they were companies that were generating earnings and generating cash flows and paying dividends and growing dividends. It, it all kind of makes sense. That's what economic theory, business theory would all suggest that those are successful companies and those should be successful equities. And I think um, if there is a normalization and what we've experienced over the past two years is an anomaly. As we go forward in time, maybe the maybe the look back will be, it was an anomaly. Well, how do we explain that anomaly? Probably had something to do with interest rates being held by central banks around the world at zero or below zero for an extended period of time. That is an anomaly. It was a policy response to a crisis, if you will. So I'm not going to say it was the wrong policy response, but it was a policy. And one of the consequences, maybe one of the unintended consequences of that is when the cost of debt is zero, it allows for a market environment where very, very long duration stories can become very attractive because the discount rate, it doesn't really matter whether the, if the discount rate is zero, it doesn't matter whether you're going to get a dollar today or 10 years from now. And suddenly when interest rates start to normalize, then you start to think about things maybe in a more critical way. And you start to realize there is time value to money and a world of nominal interest rates at zero or negative, a world of negative real interest rates. There's something anomalous about that. That's not the long run steady state economic environment that we should expect that long term interest rates should be negative. That's weird. Yeah, you also look at the implications for the bond market just on that for a sec, is that, is that while interest rates are zero or near zero, lenders aren't being compensated for the risks they take. And at the end of the day, that risk is really transferred to the shareholders, as it always is anyway, that risk is magnified when risk has little or no price. Right. So it's it all sort of fits together the pieces of the puzzle here. One of the sectors that has done well in this environment with rates starting to move up is financials because it's financials, yeah. 
This is uh, finally an environment where the arithmetic of how does a financial institution make money, it starts to work again. So the last leg in your thesis is salvation. So in your, what is it? Uh, and, uh, you know, what do income investors look forward to during this period of salvation, John? Yeah, and I have to say, so that was a title that we came up with. And when it was first suggested, it was put forward as, I don't know, that's a little bit dramatic. That's not really like us. And then we kind of gravitated around it and said, yeah, it's a little dramatic, but let's go with it. The salvation is we've kind of been talking about it, this return to a more normal environment, a return to an environment where the kinds of strategies like global equity shareholder yield that used to be very successful. And then for a period of time, we're left behind the wheel turns and and they can be successful again. And you can look at a business and say, this should be a good stock. Why? Because it's a good company. It's generating earnings. It's generating cash flows. The cash flows are growing, pays an attractive dividend. The dividend is supported by the growth in earnings and cash flows. Not only do I expect the business to do well, I expect it to pay a dividend and grow a dividend and even have excess cash to return to shareholders through shareholder distributions like share buybacks. That's a good business. That should be a good stock. When we talk about salvation, it's our the salvation for, for those of us who've kept the faith, <laughs> continued to try to invest in a certain way, even when it wasn't the popular way to invest. So, John, this has been a fascinating conversation. Thanks very much for your time. I think if, if we were to summarize how you invest, can you just very quickly summarize the base thesis of shareholder yield and what it's looking to achieve for investors? Sure. I mean, it is, it's a diversified portfolio. We own typically about a hundred stocks. We're looking for companies that, as I've said a couple of times already, they're generating cash flow. They have a track record of generating growing cash flow over time, a track record of paying an attractive growing dividend over time. And on the basis of our analysis, as we you know, manage the portfolio and vet ideas for the portfolio, we have an expectation that going forward, these businesses will continue to grow, continue to prosper, continue to generate growing cash flow, and continue to reward the shareholders of the business with attractive growing dividends over time. It's a strategy that you know, I sometimes say, what's the value proposition with shareholder yield? It should give you, call it market-like returns. And you know, as you alluded to earlier, it's not a portfolio of lottery tickets that is going to promise the possibility that you might get rich overnight, but it's a strategy that should deliver market-like returns with lower volatility than the market, with consistent and steady income. You know, dividends are always positive, and that's an important component of your total return stream, dividends that you collect quarter after quarter after quarter. Good upside participation. And when the market is, when the market goes up 25%, we're not going to beat the market, but we should be able to keep up with the market. And 2021 is, is a good example. Uh, the market was up over 20% and we were up about 19%. So we were a couple of hundred basis points behind in US dollar terms. That's the kind of upside participation we should be able to deliver with good downside protection. And that's critically important because we're investing with the hope of generating wealth, protecting and preserving wealth. And so you need to also be able to protect on the downside. And this is something that this strategy has demonstrated over its 15 plus year history, that it dampens the effect of the downdrafts, which makes sense because you're investing, as I said, in a diversified portfolio of companies that have been generating cash flow and paying dividends. These are resilient businesses to begin with, and we put them together into a diversified portfolio. And so there's this resilience and durability in that portfolio effect. It's a good core strategy. It's a good income strategy. It's a good defensive strategy. And we think it should be a good strategy in an environment where rates are rising. And that's what we see unfolding over the next couple of years. 
And we agree with you, John. I think that you touched on diversification, you know, in your in, in your remarks about describing the portfolio you invest in. And of course, every investor, diversification is their best friend. So for those investors seeking income, of course, they should own some fixed income interest. They should own some time deposits or term deposits, but they should also own equities because equities compensate for what bonds can't do as equities have the ability to pass on the impacts of inflation through price rises to their customers and thus protect their earnings. So equities really are a great inflation hedge. And that's why you should own some of them in your income generating asset pool. And for a long period of time, we lost sight of that because all the interest, pardon the pun, was focused on these short duration stocks and the explosive returns they generated. But the, the tide's turned now. I think this is a great opportunity to everyone, for everyone, I should say, to refocus on benefits of the types of equities that you and your colleagues at Epic invest in. So it's a great time to have another look at this portfolio. So John, thank you very much for your time this afternoon. We really appreciate your insights. Hopefully in the not too distant future, our borders will reopen to, to you and your colleagues and we'd like to take you back to see our investors here in Australia again. Well, thanks, Damo. I've really enjoyed the conversation. Thank you so much for inviting me. And I do look forward to visiting you again. It's been nice to, to look out on the snow in my backyard and imagine you sitting in, in warm, sunny Australia. It's a nice picture in my mind. <laughs> well, we did used to get you out in the first quarter of every year. So it was always a good a good distraction from the snow, wasn't it? Yeah. So it was. It was a good break. we'll do that again soon. Yeah. Yep. Look forward to it. Thanks, John. We'll see you soon. Okay, Damo.